0: I'm Linda Yu, I'm a Fellow in Economics at St Edmund Hall in the University of Oxford. I'm the author of Macroeconomics and i have a forthcoming book later on this year called The Law and Economics of Globalisation which looks at the cutting-edge issues in law and economics as it relates to the global economy in the 21st century.
1: My name is Jonathan Mickey, I'm president of Kellogg College, one of the university's graduate colleges and also director of the university's department for continuing education. I thought I'd introduce myself by quoting from the book I edited on globalization five years ago in which I did point out that the fact that the economy is becoming increasingly internationalized does not dictate the form that this process is taking. The free market laissez-faire agenda is one being pursued by those who benefit from such a deregulated, winner-takes-all environment. It is not the only choice. And for the majority of the world's population, it is an inappropriate one. So that's what I said five years ago.
0: It's a nice entree into this podcast, since we are certainly um, just days from the conclusion of the G20 meeting, of finance ministers, which is laying the groundwork for the G20 summit, coming up on April the 2nd in London. And one of the big items on the agenda was certainly how to reform the international regulatory system. And, of course, the other one, the rather small matter of how to get us out of this current economic crisis... Um, and, uh, and, and I thought um, the conclusion of the meeting was nothing uh, that we didn't expect. Um, they were, after all, just setting the agenda for what the heads of state need to tackle at the London um, summit. Um, and certainly these two areas about uh, what we must do to get out the, of the crisis and um, the ways in which we need to think about reforming the international system so we don't get ourselves into this mess again um, both unsurprisingly ended up on the agenda for um, the next, um, for the big summit coming up.
1: Yes, I mean, I've mean heard it um, reported the, the meeting of the G20 finance ministers as a uh, little sign of life uh, I mean, you're right, maybe, maybe more will come out as they uh, prepare for the meeting of the heads of state. I mean, I don't know, Linda, what you saw as the key um, emerging issues uh, from the G20 in terms of what they'll try to achieve. I mean, so far they, they seem to have flagged up the, the need for a more... Uh, effective international regulator, if you like, but the main proposal seems to be to put more resources into the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the problem, of course, with that is that the IMF itself doesn't have a particularly good track record in dealing with global financial problems, and so I don't think that's going to meet with unanimous uh, applause with the whole G20, unless the IMF itself is reformed.
0: Yeah, I think that actually came out as one of the concrete areas they wanted to work on for the agenda because um, there's certainly a huge disagreement across the Atlantic about whether or not we even need... Uh, more international regulations. The Americans are not very much for this approach, whereas the Europeans see it as a very pressing issue. But they do seem to agree the IMF needs to be bolstered, meaning that its funds to rescue countries have to be increased. The question is who's going to put in the money? And they were looking to countries like China and other emerging economies to do so. But understandably, if you want to increase the funds, the rescue funds of the IMF by asking developing countries to put in hundreds of billions of dollars, they rightly will ask for a bigger stake in dictating how the IMF works. So we have a bit of a chicken and egg problem in that the um, Americans want to increase the IMF to have the capacity of say uh, $500 billion, a figure of $750 billion was floated so that countries like the Ukraine, like Pakistan, who get in trouble, can be bailed out. And they're asking for this from China and other emerging economies who say in turn, um, we don't want to give the money until the IMF is reformed. And who the stakeholders are becomes reformed substantially. So at the moment, the United States has over 12% of shares in the IMF, giving it an effective veto over the actions of the IMF. China has around 3% of the stakes of the IMF, meaning it doesn't have a very loud voice. So China is going to want a bigger stake, but that of course means reducing the stake of the current dominant countries in the IMF, and that would be the European Union and the United States. And I think uh, a tricky negotiating point for them will be, how do you get past this impasse? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I I think it nicely illustrates the the changing balance of the world economy over the last 10, 20, 30 years. The fact that the IMF still reflects the the post-Second World World War settlement, really, when the United States was the dominant world economy, and really insisted on having the the main say in in the IMF and the World Bank. Of course, since then, the situation has changed it was rather ironic seeing the Chinese Prime Minister quoted recently as as, uh, basically warning America that they'd have to get their uh, economic uh, house in order domestically because China was holding all these uh, American government bonds and uh, China didn't want to see their uh, investments risk. I thought that uh, nicely illustrated the point. So in terms of the IMF, I think that there's two things really. One is, you're right, the, the changed balance of, uh, of economic power across the world really has to um, be recognised. But of course the, the IMF has um, had a bad press in the past because of their um, conditionality of, of, of basically uh, requiring governments to cut government spending um, in order to, to uh, qualify for loans, which of course is the exact opposite of uh, what's needed at the moment. Um, and it just ties into another Debate, I imagine, which will emerge in the G20 about this—the question about to what extent can the the leading economies coordinate any uh, fiscal deflation, fiscal stimulus. But um, on the point of regulation and and the differences between America and and uh, Europe, well, I thought Private eye I um, captured it nicely with with uh, Gordon Brown's visit over to the States, when Gordon Brown was saying to Barack Obama, um, "Can you save me?" And Barack Obama was saying, "No, we can't." Because it's clear that there is a a difference in attitude to regulation, which is interesting, and I think perhaps reflects the fact that uh, America, actually, perhaps slightly ironically, has maybe had more regulation in the economy since the Second World War, during the 1950s, 1960s, and so on, um, because they never had much public ownership. You know, in Britain and, and Europe, the, the basic utilities, gas, electricity, the telecoms, railways, coal, um, was all in public ownership. Whereas in the United States, because those basic utilities were in private ownership, they had to be regulated. So you always had more regulation in America. And then you, so you've had decades, really, of a so-called regulatory capture, where uh, the regulators seem to really just do what the big companies want which isn't necessarily the result of corruption it can be very you know sophisticated game playing by the companies to take action on investments and so on which they guess will bring about the sort of um, decisions by the regulators which they secretly wanted and so on. It all does get very complex and I sometimes wonder whether actually that's why America's maybe uh, at the moment a bit more sceptical about regulation because they have seen a lot of regulation over the years and decades and hasn't always had a particularly uh, uh, positive impact.
0: I mean, they they are, despite America's reservations, I think there is a growing recognition that um, if capital markets move across borders, you have to have some degree of governance over those capital Mm -hmm. flows, whether it's an actual regulator or something else. Um, One thing which they did agree on, which was to expand the membership of the Financial Stability Forum, the SF. Um, F, which is within the Bank for International Settlements, which is known as the Central Bank Central Bank, because that's really where central bankers gather. But the FSF was set up after the Asian financial crisis in order to set up uh, things like uh, capital adequacy ratios for banks um, to try and govern the standards by which capital markets are, are looked at by individual countries and the membership of this body is now uh, going to include all the members of the G20 and that's certainly an improvement because they've now captured uh, around ninety percent of the world's um, GDP and that's a huge improvement over what it was before that being said um, all the other regulatory suggestions by Gordon Brown and others there really wasn't very much progress at all at this meeting so there have been ideas floated like um, having the Bank for International Settlements play a bigger role in watching for developing global imbalances and asset bubbles, having um, the authority to monitor cross-border capital flows, so that you have a better sense of where hot money, which is um, one of the problems um, in this financial crisis, is coming from and where it's going to. But I think when you get to that level of detail and who is actually going to do the monitoring and what it means if they do monitor, I think that's where the negotiations get very tricky. So even in principle, everyone can see that with globalized capital markets, you have to have some degree of oversight. Um, But who runs the oversight and what kind of oversight are the unsettled questions.
1: Yeah and I think that's a a very important uh, point which is maybe one of the few positive things definitely emerging that people do realise that uh, a completely unregulated international free-for-all in in financial markets um, isn't sensible. I think maybe it wasn't really discussed much over the last 20 years just because the global economy seemed to be doing okay because it's uh, it's important to remember that uh, during the, the whole era when when the world um, economy was actually the most successful during the 1950s, 1960s, early 70s, there was actually very tight regulation on financial movements for purely speculative purposes. You know, it was always relatively easy to to get currency to, to um, import and export and invest overseas and so on. But just um, speculative flows, it was difficult to get the, the foreign currency for. And, that de- deregulation really only happened in the 1980s. I mean, Britain was at the first of Margaret Thatcher being elected in and abolished exchange controls immediately. But most of the other European uh, countries, was, it was later in the 1980s. And the assumption at the time, uh, which I didn't really remember much, was that uh, there would just be a one-off movement. You know, it was like having a dam. was holding back the water and it was just a, a market imperfection, if you like. You removed the dam, everything would... Lebanite, And then, again, the one uh, well, majority of request for foreign currency would be, again, for exporting, importing, foreign holidays, investing abroad and so on. Um, but that turned out not to be the case. It was this big movement in foreign currency, which people thought was this one-off movement. But actually that just continued year after year after year. And if anything it got bigger and bigger. And now we can see actually it was just a, a big speculative bubble, sort of building up over the um, 20 years. So I think that is um, something which has come out of the, the current discussions, which is positive. And I think um, actually links into sort of, you know, economic theory and uh, um, discussions economists have um, and whether the extent to which, um, you know, our textbook models actually uh, reflect what happens in the world or or just an abstract way of thinking for the following reason that actually um, Tobin, the Nobel Prize winning economist, um, suggested, you know, some time ago having what became known as the Tobin tax, he didn't call it that, but people called it after him, um, to tax these international currency movements, which would raise a lot of money and has often been proposed as an important fund for anti poverty work uh, globally. But what was interesting about the the purpose of the tax, as far as Tobin was concerned, was that it was precisely to stop the the world currency markets working like a a textbook free market. His point was precisely um, to put what he called a sand in the wheels. You know, to slow the, the whole movement down um, because the ultimate aim wasn't just to have sort of perfect uh, markets for the sake of it but actually to, to focus on the real uh, um, economic processes of it, investing um, overseas, importing and exporting goods and services and so on and that could actually be distorted by, by these purely speculative flows which can um, slop around the, the uh, global uh, economy at massive speed disrupting um, currency movements and so on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, we we certainly are revisiting that debate. Um, I mean, I think one of the biggest parts about this whole G20, and it actually what it highlights is that we don't have an international governance system, um, whether it's for um, regulating capital flows or investment, or um, there's such a rudimentary system in place, and there's quite a lot of infrastructure which is simply lacking at the supranational level. So if we think about what exists, there's the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank, the Bank for International Settlements. But actually, aside from trade, there's very little cross-border governance. And almost everything else which exists are voluntary standards. And I think in this crisis, we saw how that meant there is a gap in terms of um, how markets are operating across borders, creating um, upheavals within domestic economies, which is, you know, in a sense, exploiting the fact there is no supranational um, structure in place. But I, I, I do think this creating the structure will be extremely difficult. But I, I, think that one of the things the um, uh, the last Washington summit, which was the precursor to the G20 coming up. Um, was uh, ambitiously called creating a new Bretton Woods. Mm -hmm. I think this is very much on the agenda. I mean, the other big thing on the agenda, which of course they made very little progress on, was actually how we get out of this current crisis. So um, we heard various things coming out of the um, the major economies. Um, Timothy Geithner, the US Treasury Secretary, wanted all countries to spend 2% of GDP to stimulate the economy. This did not go down very well with the continental Europeans. thought that 2% increase in discretionary spending was simply too much debt to take on, when in their economies there are a lot more automatic stabilizers, so their fiscal policy works much more automatically to increase during a recession, meaning they need to borrow less to spend on discretionary spending, because there's a bigger welfare state. And in fact, the IMF estimates that over the next two years, Germany's fiscal policy, its stimulative spending, looking at both both discretionary and the automatic stabilizers will exceed four percent of GDP. So that's actually more than what the Americans are spending at the moment. Um, so I think there was there was sort of that conflict um, and there was certainly also um, you know, another um, area where we just didn't see very much pronouncement at all, which was this idea that Gordon Brown has of coordinating stimulative policies across borders. Because it is quite true that when you stimulate your economy by cutting taxes or giving tax credits, part of it goes to imports, which are another country's exports. So if all countries were to do it around the same time, you boost each other's exports, giving you a much bigger bang for your fiscal spending than otherwise. Wise. But all the statements coming out of this meeting was remarkably quiet on that point. And I suspect it's because budgets and spending are dictated by a domestic political um, agenda. And it comes out at certain times of year for most countries. Um, and uh, this idea of coordination just really didn't get off the ground very much.
1: Yes, and I think your two points are, are you know both very important, but, but interlinked, aren't they, in terms of the, the lack of... Global um, institutions, on the one hand, and the the need for coordinated uh, fiscal effort on the on the other, because one thing which might come out of the current discussions uh, in view of the state of the world economy is the importance of both types of uh, institutions and regulations. A at the global level, which is absolutely necessary, but B at the nation state level with coordination between um, countries and. And I think both are vital and it's important to appreciate that and not not allow you know politicians, sloppy thinking or anything else get in the way of that and and not allow anyone to, to sort of use one against the other and say, well, we don't need international regulation because you know governments can um, look after their, their own countries, or the opposite, you know, which, which uh, has been a danger to say, well, we're now in a globalised world, you know, nation states are irrelevant, um, there's nothing we can do, um, because that's, well, very dangerous of it then um, results in people not doing things, because then then uh, we are, are in a mess. I mean, the, the fact is that, you know, nation states governments are still um, the most powerful force, and, and it is therefore vital that they do, do coordinate. And, I mean, you know, your point about the importance of, of, um, Fiscal policy being coordinated across countries is a very important one and actually hasn't been, as far as I've seen, really linked into the debate about um, protectionism where people seem much more clear on thinking it. Everyone seems clear we mustn't have protectionism as a bad thing and yet there doesn't seem to be a realisation that in a very real sense that the fiscal policy your uh, government pursues can have just the same effect can be illustrated either way. So, I mean, the the reason he came up with Barack Obama is he wanted to expand his economy. And as you say, to be fair to him, if no one else did, then all those dollars would have just gone overseas and, and uh, it would have had uh, no effect. That was the idea of the you know some of this uh, public money um, being spent domestically. Um, but conversely, if everyone else is expanding and just one country decides to, in effect, free ride and do nothing and just be able to sell more of its goods uh, abroad, um, that's equally bad. And, and I mean, I think this has long been recognised going back to the 1930s, where there was the same, same debate about protectionism or, or, or um, devaluing versus staying in, in the gold standard, where... The Cambridge economist, uh, a colleague of John Maynard Keynes, Joan Robinson, argued protections are may, may be harmful, but actually um, being in recession was equally harmful to be your neighbouring economies um, because if your if your country's in recession with mass unemployment, then you're not buying goods from um, your neighbouring countries, and that's equally uh, a bad neighbourly. Comment she had some quote like that. Actually, you know, keeping your country in recession when there's no need to is the worst of all bad neighbourly. Um, Policies. So I think you're you're absolutely right. It is key to get that uh, coordinated action. The extent to which that's uh, will actually come out of the G20, be interesting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, at the very least, um, they could have vowed not to be protectionist. Um, And you get the sense that's there because what you say is absolutely, you know, spot on in that. The other side of this is that countries could agree not to close their borders, whether it's on trade or financial nationalism. Um, This was said at the first summit in Washington last um, autumn, but of course since then we've seen things like the Buy American provision in America, and there have been little signs of countries rescuing their banking system and then suggesting they use the money on domestic, helping domestic firms and domestic homeowners. Now there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that if your firms are suffering from the credit crunch but if by implication the very same banks you're encouraging have to pull back from overseas markets to secure their balance sheets then you are contributing to this idea of financial protectionism. Where global capital flows this year are projected to decline dramatically um, down to maybe just billion or so, down from over a trillion dollars over the last few years. And that is in reaction to the fact that quite a lot of banks are going back into their home markets, some because of the subsidies being given to them by uh, by governments. So I think financial protectionism hasn't been on the agenda and it really should be. Um, And in many ways um, in this crisis, that's the area that is supremely important. And of course, generally speaking, protectionism against trade is just not going to help anyone at all. And in fact, um, the Buy American provision was watered down in the Senate, but just the fact that it was there, and there's little signs of protectionism around the world, like in Venezuela and other places. Closing your border off to exports at a time, when your economy needs another sector to help propel it, whether it's um, you know exports or global capital flows, it's just not a sensible policy. But at least I think that's much more recognized than what's happening on financial markets.
1: Yeah, I suppose the one uh, other area where um, it- Seems like maybe there is beginning to be more agreement among the G20 countries, certainly since the first of, of these discussions uh, um, we had. I, I remember in one of the previous ones we noted that Barack Obama had called for um, clampdown on tax avoidance internationally, and I remember saying there's a shame that the British government hadn't uh, um, joined in with that. I mean, there does seem to be movement now from, from Gordon Brown and most of the European governments as well, to the extent that even Switzerland is at least saying that for the first time ever they'll you know open their books and have some transparency about who's holding money in switzerland so there does seem to be um some emerging consensus that there should be some international action against um tax avoidance against the tax havens and potentially some sort of spilling over into the whole debate about the bonus culture in banks, the excessive um, bonuses paid even for for failure, which again has been both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, obviously it's been big news in Britain with the uh, um, large pensions being paid out to uh, failed bankers, but also Barack Obama's um, made quite a big deal of of that with the um, AIG insurance company that America bailed out now apparently paying... um, 165 million dollars um, like making in, in um, bonuses, uh, creating I think 73 millionaires in the department, which actually caused all, the, all the, uh, um, the problem. And if those two do come together, a realization that this excessive inequality, I mean, absolutely astronomic salaries for for um, the people at the top, on the one hand, and in effect the same thing globally with these with these uh, tax um, havens. I mean, that that may be um, something which comes out of this global crisis because after all this degree of inequality that we've seen over the last 10 years is quite unprecedented I mean there was nothing like that during the 1950s 60s 70s or even 1980s um, so I think some reverse of that reduces in inequalities ironically will be necessary in a way to pay pay off these huge debts all the governments have got into with the bank bailouts. you know some progressive um, taxation but also may um, help in in tackling one of the Causes of the crisis because it was a very interesting inaugural lecture given by Professor Fotis Lysandro last week, uh, in which he um, pointed out that almost all the consensus had blamed the sort of the supply side, if you like, you know, these bankers were creating all these new um, fancy products, and, and no one had really looked at the demand side. Why were they all um, being bought up? Where there was this demand coming from? And obviously part, part of it was coming from governments and so on. But the the big New uh, story in that the, the um, big new feature over the last few years, compared to previous decades, was this massive rise of the, the super billionaires, the very high um, net worth individuals, who, in quantitative terms, had, had uh, represented quite a large slice of this demand for all these new um, products, uh, financial um, products. So actually, if that if that clamp down on, on tax avoidance, tax evasion um, globally, along with a, um, a more sensible distribution of income you know, within countries and, and between countries. Um, if that emerges, it would actually help not only to um, allow governments to repay over the, the years these huge deficits which have been um, created, these huge um, debt burdens which have created, but also may help to create a, a more stable economy in the future. Mm-hmm.
0: I suppose that's a nice entree into our next podcast, which will look at the UK budget um, as it comes out and uh, assess how we've uh, come along on the recession as well as the, uh, the bailout package. And I should hasten to add, the reason the budget was moved, allegedly, to come out later on in April was that it could follow the G20 summit. So a lot of the issues that we cover today are... Um, viewed to be very important to the British government as it formulates its budget, and I suspect it will be very important for a lot of economies as they look to uh, the global economy as a source of context um, for setting out what they're going to do themselves um, in the next few months and next year.
1: Yeah, the final word I'd, I'd say is that we should note that Mervyn King, the governor of the Bank of England today, was was quoted from a speech yesterday of criticising, quotes, casino trading of investment banks, which I think is very important because uh, I, along with a lot of other people, have been criticising the whole casino capitalism model that we've had for the last 10 or 20 years for some time. So it's good to see him coming on board. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a nice point to end on. <laughs>